Let me start that whole thing over. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> Just kind of all over the place. Okay, I know. This I'm is back. tough. This was your idea. I know. <laughs> Never going to let me lift this down, are you? No, that's our cold open. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm Emily Einelander, and Chris Curran has thankfully returned to finish what we started. Hi, Chris. Hi, Emily. How are you? <laughs> I'm okay. How's your brain? Uh, uh, I can't wait for this to be done. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, uh, please, please uh, continue. <laughs> well, once again, we are here to discuss... <sighs> <sighs> anthropodermic bibliopathy. Now, whereas we discussed it with almost clinical detachment last time, uh, this time we need to dive headfirst into the ugly truth. And that's our clickbait intro out of the way. <laughs> we did this to ourselves and we deserve the emotional pain that we have brought on ourselves. I just, that said, that said, here are the content warnings. And I'm just going to cover the entire thing. And Chris, if I forget anything, please uh, chime in. So I've got content warning for corpse violation, medical ethics violations, abuse of power, objectifying the human body, worms, murder and mutilation, <laughs> racism and colonialism, the French, the British, Foucault, who is a Harper's Letter style advocate of sex with children, along with Simone de Beauvoir. So um, chew on that. And uh, of course, there will be swearing. Uh, did I miss anything, Chris? I think you did a good job. But you know what? We're probably going to uncover many of these and many more as we go along. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so just this is this is a uh, blanket content warning for the entire episode. Will to be and upsetting. So um, we'll see the five of you who remain at the end. As we're, as we're talking about that stuff, we, we also just want to be conscious of the possibility of using uh, some evasive language or, or excuses. So we are doing our best to avoid using terms like moral gray area, uh, which is, a, in our opinion, it's very disingenuous and, and very dismissive of some uh, contentious and ugly truths uh, of the past. Yeah, also like of its time. <laughs> this is one of yeah. my favorite evasions. Well, you know, they were definitely a product of their time. That's another one. Yeah. Um like if, let's retire those. Um yeah, find find other ways to uh to uh describe that and not make it a deflection. Exactly. And uh, uh please please continue with uh, our sources. Well, once again, uh, our sources include the book Dark Archives by Megan Rosenblum. And then we have another uh, source uh, I would like to introduce. It's called The Butchering Art, Joseph Lister's Quest to Transform the Grisly World of Victorian Medicine 
by Dr. Lindsay Fitzharris. A fascinating read about Victorian medicine. Uh, I highly, highly recommend reading it and highly recommend this lady's fabulous YouTube channel. As we examined the reasons for building myths around books bound with human skin, we found that it could often be simplified to one or a combination of three motivators, and those were prestige, politics, and propaganda. I guess the number two and three kind of uh, overlap, but we will first talk about the rumors surrounding the skin of French aristocrats and subsequently how they turned around to help create a deep divide between how the rich and poor are treated medically. Then we'll loop back to the gentlemen doctors of England, how they were enabled, and what kinds of laws were made to decide whose bodies could be used for medical and scientific research or personal display. We'll then talk about a special kind of propaganda that categorized American rumors about binding books in human skin, as well as documents made from supposedly human skin. And then we'll get back to the big question of what the right thing to do is with these human remains that have been used to bind books. So let's start out by imagining being French. That is a great way to start any historical conversation. So (laughs) haven't we all? So a lot of these books, um, several of these books that have been purportedly or proven to be bound in human skin have some kind of connection to to the French Revolution itself and then to subsequent French revolutions. But here's, here's a thought. So these books are rumored to be guillotined aristocrats' skin. So at what point did this rumor start? This leads us to, to question what did the revolutionaries do with the human bodies of the executed. So, so oftentimes, um, people in attendance of, of guillotined aristocrats would purportedly dip handkerchiefs into the blood of the newly decapitated. And oftentimes, um, there would be rumors of, of these people being, of these aristocrats being, um, being skinned after their executions. And it's, it's, disgusting and and an awful thing but it's it's interesting to to note that in the years following the French Revolution that the people in possession of these of these skins of these bloody handkerchiefs and and um, all of these things were seen as as the true believers in um, the French Revolution so it almost it almost became something um, of a status symbol that they that they had these human skins that they had these skins of these evil damned aristocrats um and so as a result having these things connected them to being on the uh quote unquote right side of history at least at least that's how we would probably phrase it today the fact that these rumors seem to have begun decades after the first revolution suggests the lasting power of the revolution and its ethos. There was such a huge um, overthrow of, of the French status quo following the revolution with the, with the reign of terror and Robespierre, and then going into Napoleon, who's the Napoleonic era, and the wars that ensued that had a lasting impact on, on French society. Um, when Napoleon was overthrown, not once, but twice, it was interesting to see just how quickly um, the other European monarchies 
put the French monarchy back in place, which would ultimately lead to the July Revolution of 1830. And, and that July Revolution, which is what um, Hugo's work, uh, Victor Hugo's work, Les Miserables, is based on, kind of serves to illustrate that, yes, 30 some odd years after the, the first re French Revolution, how a lot of these conversations were still being had. So with that in mind, last time we talked about um, the book On the Destiny of the Soul, the, the book that was bound, um, that has been confirmed to have been bound in, in, uh, uh, in human skin. That was bound not that long after the July Revolution. So the past experiences of this culture, what I'm getting at is that, that these, the bloody handkerchiefs and the possession of the, the skinned aristocrats and, um, and everything, could that have normalized in, in the French mind uh, using parts of the body in gruesome ways? such as, you know, binding in skin or, or just the general idea of, of it being an appropriate, uh, an appropriate celebration, uh, of a woman's life to have another woman's skin. Yeah, exactly. And also wondering if, again, those people who, who possessed human skin, was that a way to show them as being true believers in the in the ideals of of the revolution you can see the impact of ideology of people who do these things and who make these bindings as well because there's there's an emotional component to something that objectifies somebody else so much and it's kind of su surprising given that we're going to talk about clinical detachment as well it's an interesting binary it is, that is a really interesting binary isn't it mm -hmm. um and it it's almost funny. I mean, this is this is going to be generalizing and probably relying a little bit too much on um, on um, national uh, stereotypes. But you have you know the French on one side, and then ultimately we're going to be talking about English and specifically Victorian uh, quote unquote gentlemen doctors, right? So you have so you have you know the passionate French, and then you have this kind of like detached, you know, British gentleman doctor uh, gaze um, upon upon these dead human beings. When it comes to um, the gentleman doctors, historically speaking, the physician, the surgeon, and the anatomist were, were entirely separate fields, which is which is a complete divorce from how we view medical doctors nowadays, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So here's where Lindsay Fitzharris comes in. Her book, The Butchering Art, comes in. She did a really good job mm. of summarizing the distinctions between Victorian uh, doctors and Victorian surgeons. Physicians, uh, to the Victorian mind, were gentlemen, meaning educated and well off. They used their minds to treat patients. They would listen to symptoms, supposedly, um, <laughs> They would listen to the symptoms and then they would prescribe medication or, or treatment uh, with various success and efficacies. Well, Lindsay Fitzharris did a really good job of, of explaining this. She says, quote, gentlemen doctors acted as gatekeepers for their profession, admitting only men whom they believed had good breeding and high mor moral standing. Now, end quote, um, surgeons, on the other hand, were, were considered to be tradesmen. They apprenticed right? 
they uh, they apprentice the same way that that a textile weaver would have apprenticed, or a um, or a chimney sweep, or or a blacksmith, or something like that. They apprenticed learning their trade, uh, specifically like how how to you know amputate a limb. That was like that was their big function uh, was um, amputating uh, necrotic limbs. Surgeons oftentimes had no university training. They had no college education or what we would consider to be college education. And Fitzharris also uh, notes that in the early years of the 19th century, some of these surgeons were even illiterate. And the distinction between, not to draw too hard a line, but the distinction between the surgeon and the physician was often class. Um, Class-related physicians were college-educated. Surgeons, on the other hand, worked with their hands. This would, this would, of course, change over time, obviously, but that's such an interesting dichotomy to me. Yeah, and um, it was similar for, the, uh, for healing and uh, midwifery. So mm-hmm. there, was, there was a scholastic culture amongst midwives, but it was interestingly after the French Revolution, there was kind of this very, very tentative line drawing because it's like we took all of the books from the elites and put them in the National Library and we want all of these things to be for the people. But even so, there was this um, this separation, this wedge that ended up coming in between the men who were uh, elevating, I guess, the uh, the medical profession along with surgery and making it so that you had to have these gates in front of those, like you said, um, like Fitzharris said, the gatekeeping. Um, and it yeah. came to encompass all of these, these uh, functions for treating people's illnesses and for delivering babies. For our purposes, we want to talk about that detachment and that separation from, uh, from healing uh, versus research. Um, this is where the content warning for uh, for Mr. Foucault comes in, uh, because his his framework for discussing it is is pretty useful, and I'm glad that uh, Rose, Rosenblum brought that into her book. So, arguably, the more detached quote unquote clinical gaze, as he called it, made it easier for doctors to see people's bodies as objects, because the more that medicine progressed in the way of, you know, a more elite educated practice, it became that in clinics and hospitals, there was an educational component for the other doctors. This, of course, as many things do, ended up leading to stratification between rich and poor. And, you know, you go to the poor hospital to to study how to do things so you can treat the rich people from that education. Um, One quote that I thought was interesting um, from Birth of the Clinic, articulating the tension between those two priorities, is this not a tacit form of violence, all the more abusive for its silence upon a sick body that demands to be comforted, not displayed. My thought was, especially if you remember our discussion of Mary Lynch in the last episode, um, who's the woman who died of trichinosis, betrayed by a ham sandwich. I'm still mad about that. (laughs) I think we all are. (laughs) I'm, you know, I might sound glib, but I really think it's sad. It is sad. It's so sad. (laughs) It is very, very sad. And uh, 
whose skin Dr. John Huff used to bind three books on uh, female reproductive health, anthropodermic bibliopagy is almost a reduction to absurdity of, of the sick body being displayed. It's displayed on your bookshelf to the delight of all of your upper crust fancy friends. <laughs> but at the same time, we did need to learn about the human body. Of course, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be too, you know, doctors bad. How are you going to learn about something if you can't look at it? But uh, as time went on, the status of gentlemen doctors was very problematic because they were gentlemen. And then there was that need for anatomical understanding and it ended up making in the eyes of mostly the rich elites, some of their more gruesome actions justifiable. Not to say that didn't sow lots of public distrust and scandal because it did, but the consequences were not the same for the doctors and researchers as they were for people who supplied corpses to those doctors and researchers. Ooh, supplying <laughs> corpses. That's... <laughs> I, I think That's we never. all kind of know what that means. Like anyone who's who's uh, read anything about Victorian times or I don't know, even like Da Vinci and Michelangelo. Like, exactly. Well, you're going to get your bodies. Well, they got to come from somewhere. With that said, here we go. Uh, so <laughs> so body snatching uh, is what we're what we're talking about. So so for centuries, the the surgeons and um, the anatomists procured their corpses from, from these grave robbers, people that would go out um, and dig up, illegally dig up um, freshly, uh, freshly dug graves. Um, as, as such, bringing, these, bringing these, um, these bodies out of the ground um, led to them kind of getting the I don't know what what would you call this? Would you call this a um, would you call this a euphemism? The resurrectionists. Um, I, I think it's more of a glorification, frankly. Interesting, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I mean, I don't know if if people viewed language with the with the same kind of uh, maybe it's a function of of our time in history that I see resurrectionist and think, ooh, that sounds like magic. Yeah, exactly. Um, sort of that, sort of that. This happens. This happens outside of outside of the view, outside of what we see day to day. So, so how does it happen? It it happens almost magically. Um, and how do people get into this business? Well, <laughs> um, through criminal acts. All it takes is doing. I did, however, come across as we were, you know, reading about this. I came across something that. Um, uh, just a small side note, I came across something that I did not know, um, but it was interesting to to see, to read about how gangs of body snatchers would eventually form. Um, grave robbers would often band together to kind of form an illicit guild. And, Wait, what? A guild? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah like, a, like an honest-to-God guild. Um with like a hierarchy of of positions and it it seemed like it i again this is where that whole you know what i need to do more research on this mm -hmm. <laughs> thing comes in exactly how that works but it, it was interesting to see how oftentimes these um these different guilds or gangs let's call them um fought each other like they would they would they would get into street brawls 
over territory. So it was like the 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 cocaine. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I don't know. It just blew my mind um, that that was that 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 was a thing. And um, I guess cocaine was legal though. Yeah, yeah, that's medical quackery at its finest. Um, <laughs> Sometimes you just need some energy. But <laughs> um. So back to the back to the great robbers, the body snatchers, the the resurrectionists. Um, call them what you will. Um, there was a famous case in in 1828, and I'm sure several people have heard about this. Two two grave robbers um, by the names of William Burke and William Hare living in living in Ed- Edinburgh in an attempt to meet the increasing demand. Um, by the surgeons in Edinburgh. By this point, Edinburgh had um, had become a capital of surgical dissection and surgical education. Um, so in order to meet increased demand, ugh, Burke and Hare went from robbing graves to actually killing people to, to provide uh, these schools, these anatomy schools with, with the bodies they needed. Um, they eventually, uh, it was eventually proven that they, that they strangled 16 people and sold their quote unquote, suspiciously fresh corpses, um, to the, to the local med schools or the local surgery schools. One surgeon by the name of Robert Knox bought, um, a lot of these corpses, if not all of them. Um, but he bought these corpses for his private anatomy school. The two Williams, uh, Burke and Hare, um, do you think they just called each other Bill? Hey, Bill. No, I, I prefer to think, I prefer to think Billy. that one. Yeah, one was Billy, the other one was Will, or something like that. I don't know. Who knows? It was hey, probably, it was probably like something completely different. It was like, when you look at, uh, the, uh, victims of Jack the Ripper, it was like, her name was Mary. People also called her Liz. It's like, yeah. where, do you, where do you get these? That's a completely different name. That's not even a nickname. Um, <laughs> I don't enough. understand Victorian England as, as much as, as others might, but, um, and when you say, when you say strangled also, like, this might be too much information, so I don't want to go too much into it. They literally invented a new way of killing people to make it look like an accident where they just like w- one person would grab their legs and the other person would just lie on top of them until they died. And it was called burking. Like it, there became a word for it. Oh my God. This was a, this was a very, this was a very uh, public and, um, obviously salacious case and as um, anyone who knows what the world of the press and newspapers and stuff were at the time although I guess they're still kind of like that in England I don't know Um, (laughs) just ridiculous amounts of coverage and drama Uh, yeah exactly and I think I think it's this is not the same thing at all but but um you know, it's kind of it's kind of like uh, how, for a time there, I don't think people do this. I don't think people do this anymore. But um, for for a while there, Kevorkian was used in in a verb. Yeah, yeah. It's it was just like that. Yeah, something yeah. something like that, where you know something so salacious turns into 
you know, turns into the um, synonym for for the process itself, which I just find interesting from like a sociolinguistic standpoint, I guess. How a name um, becomes a verb and why it's almost always something bad. <laughs> well, like, like, um, what's his bucket? Um, Mesmer. <laughs> what's his bucket? Yeah, what, whatever. I, I, I'm blanking on his first name right now, but uh, his first name or his last name was Mesmer. And he, um, uh, he came, he, he, developed hypnosis and and um magic hoogly googly uh stuff and ultimately his name turned into mesmerize it's a great word it's one of my favorites i think right yeah it's very (laughs) good it's fun to say there are a lot of like neutral vowels Mm -hmm. in it and m's are always fun too nice and relaxing Mm -hmm. if i do say so myself oh and 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 you do say so i do (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I threw you off your game. So, uh, yeah. What was I talking about? You're talking Uh, about, (laughs) um, Robert Knox and his private anatomy school. Oh yeah. So one day in the operating theater, one of the gentlemen observing a, a surgical dissection, uh, demonstration recognized the person on the table, recognized the corpse on the table. And, and that's how. Burke and Hare were were discovered to to be murderers. So eventually Hare uh, testified against Burke um, and he was pardoned and and that left uh, Burke to to hang. Um, In one of those curious, ironic moments of jurisprudence, maybe Burke was himself dissected and then this is gross um and comes back to our theme yeah exactly let's bring it all back shall we his body burke's body was eventually used um to make pocketbooks i.e wallets and things like that um it was it was in 1853 when when britain changed the law to allow for dissection of unclaimed poor people which ultimately led to to the end of of body snatching of grave robbing it's interesting how the laws were meant to discourage those um, body snatchers, but they were also meant to fulfill that demand, um, specifically right. designed specifically designed to fulfill that demand. Um, I would include up until the the um, up until this trial and up until the laws were changed, the bodies supplied legally to anatomy schools were almost solely criminals because there was a law made in 1750 called uh, 1751 called the murder act and that meant it was illegal to bury murderers so convicted murderers were all dedicated to scientific study so in the 17 and 1800s, there were a number of different laws that were created to try and stem the public outrage in response to grave robbing and Burke and Hare. But at the same time, they wanted to meet that need. Um, so we talked about the 1751 Murder Act. Um, and then the Burke and Hare murders set off uh, more discussion in legislation that had kind of been bubbling already just because the uh, grave robbing had been an ongoing problem for many years. A politician named Henry Warburton was one who took the advice of some uh, some pundits 
of the time, I think you can call them, who who said that people living, quote unquote, at the expense of the government should have to donate their bodies to science. So it that was not explicitly included in the legislation that ended up being adopted. But as you said, the the law did permit for the unclaimed poor, um, as they say, to being donated to scientific research. Um, and that was the 1830, 1853 bill for regulating schools of anatomy. Um, so the difference now was that they had to have identifying information for every corpse um, that came in, but they were still, you know, removing people who couldn't afford to be buried from workhouses and hospitals when they died because that was mm-hmm. permitted. And also because the the deceased human body cannot be property and it cannot be a human being so it has no rights of personhood but it also doesn't have like there's no legal right of ownership over it amazing loophole for these doctors who wanted to um do anthropodermic book binding just fully legal just manipulate that that loophole there Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that said let's explore some more reasons that people might want to bind a book in human skin or at least to spread the rumor that a book was bound in human skin well in in doing a lot of research for this the the thing that kept kind of popping up into my head was the idea of the the uri the i'm sorry the european curio cabinet or the cabinet of curiosities which is still a thing um you know, people, people collect things and they kind of put them into little glass cases and everything, which, you know, I may be guilty of too. Um, but this was a thing, uh, this was something that, that rich Europeans um, started doing roughly in, roughly in the 16th century. Um, these, these curio cabinets were often stocked um, with like natural history items from far-flung lands uh, uh, showing the, how well how widely traveled and how well educated the um, the owner of these things were. So oftentimes there would be there would be like a curio cabinet of um, like seashells or or sea corals or things like this, or even um, taxidermied um, taxidermied animals. And we're starting to kind of see where this is ultimately going to go. Um, well, yeah, but Mummy Brown. <laughs> yes, I. We're never going to get over Mummy Brown, are we? No. Um, it's so gross. But yeah, so these curio cabinets all ultimately became uh, status symbols, you know, showing again, you know, just how widely read and how widely traveled um, the owner was. And it's interesting to see, I think um, uh, Smithson, uh, who was responsible for finding the um, founding, excuse me, for founding the, uh, the museum organization of... Um, uh, that's named after him, right? The Smithsonian Museum. Oh yeah, okay. He, uh, he, I think he started out actually as a curiosity collector. That tracks. <laughs> yeah, oftentimes these um, these uh, cabinets of curiosity would ultimately turn into museum collections, um, or what we would now consider to be museum collections. But you know, sometimes. In, in these curiosity cabinets, you know, corpse pieces might show up. So in my mind, when I think of a curio cabinet, when I think of, when I think a cabinet of curiosities, 
in my mind, I yes, I see I see the occasional taxidermied animal or books or you know corals or or seashells or something. But also in 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 there, I oftentimes or I would often see like a uh, like a human skull or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's when we start getting these these corpses uh, from you know, far off lands, like we were talking about, like mummies and people, um, you know, specifically uh, English people would start bringing pieces of mummies or if not full mummies back and start, you know, unwrapping them um, for people. So unwrapping the mummies um, played into this whole cabinet of curiosities, this whole, hey, look where I've been and look what I brought back. And now it's just, you know, beanie babies and Hummel figurines, right? Exactly. Well, and yeah, and so that that sort of like detached gaze on the human body ends up permeating society rather than just being something that a professional person has to do. Okay, so whereas the French practice of binding books in human skin and the surrounding scurrilous claims um, had that sort of like pride and prestige, and then there was the whole medical byproduct sort of viewpoint in England... In the United States, there was there was often a an extremely American reason for spreading rumors about books and documents bound or written on human skin, racist propaganda. Uh-huh. Notably, a lot of these books and documents were not actually human skin. Um, very few of them were. In fact, it was more about the rumor and the uh, the urban legend almost. So um, first, and trigger warning for racism and devaluating human bodies, particularly people of color. Um, First, the idea of scalping was often weaponized as a narrative to turn Native Americans into monsters. Um, And that often involved creating a written narrative in tandem with supposed human skin. Um, So in some cases, there would be these parchments that would be sent to different settlements that um, would have messages written on them that claimed the parchment was actually the skin of a white man who was captured and killed um, and had various other disgusting things done to him that are very graphic and must have scared the shit out of people. And then, of course, the result of that is that white people were more likely to see manifest destiny as fair and necessary to retain, you know, spread the civilized world. But here's what's also interesting um on the on the flip side black people were often treated like sacrificial martyrs um used in propaganda to um to support the union or support the united states so there was a big uh rumor about how confederate soldiers would scalp black union soldiers um and therefore using the martyrdom of black people to demonize opponents. Um, So yes, white people uh, treating murdered black people as purely symbolic is nothing new in this country. Um, To wit, one of the most famous of these wartime martyrs um, was not actually from the Civil War. It was Crispus Attucks, um, who was a black man who was one of the first people to be killed at the hands of the British soldiers in the American Revolution. So for a couple of hundred years, a book that was purported to be bound in his skin was on display in the Welcome Library in England. 
um, which was uh, a private collection that was eventually made public. Um, and interestingly, and I just thought of this, Chris, when you were talking about the French Revolution, this surfaced about 100 years after the American Revolution. So um, there was a there was some kind of political, possibly nostalgic purpose for this rumor to be spread, but um, it was definitely found to be a fake. And I'm gonna flip hmm. this. Yeah, yeah, I don't yeah, get that- it. There, there isn't really, there wasn't really a resolution to that story that I found. I, I don't know if it's necessarily, if there necessarily needs to be a resolution. I think it just kind of speaks to, to a segment of any society that, that mythologizes its own past and wants to connect with it. So here's the question. What's the right thing to do with the books? Once when they're identified as, as human remains, how do we treat them? Do we leave them on the shelf? Do we keep them available to researchers? Or do we treat them as human remains? Um, that brings us back to Paul Needham, who we mentioned last time, the, uh, uh, the rare book librarian who called out Harvard's rather tasteless headline about uh, one book, De Destinate de l'âme, that was in Harvard's collection. The first uh, confirmed book that was an anthropodermic binding. Exactly. Exactly. Although, although Dr. Needham prefers to explicitly say books bound in human skin instead of anthropodermic books, he wants to uh, remind everyone that it is a human being every time it's mentioned. Exactly. Exactly. And, and that tracks with his whole, with, with being such a uh, proponent of, of burying or even cremating the books that are, well, that are bound in human skin. Um, he argues that that books before the mass marketing era had always been subject to rebinding. So, so there's nothing really sacred about the books in particular, which, you know, that is a that is a valid argument. Um, he's right. You, a book uh, book customer, would um, simply buy loose leaf. Um, pages of a book and then you would take those to a binder and have that person bind them into a book which is why whenever you go into those highly romantic beautiful libraries uh personal and otherwise all of the books look the same mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's because oftentimes you know uh these these rich people would buy several loose leaf books and then take them all to be bound um to their personal taste Dr. Needham's argument is is not without merit, I think. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw in my uh, I'm anyone who listens to the show knows that I bang the drum of like stop fetishizing objects um, all the time. So I, f- I feel like his beliefs are mostly consistent with what I believe, but there's you know there's a trade-off. You don't have it anymore. <laughs> you don't have it anymore and um, who knows? So, so here's where I, with, with a historian's eye, kind of look at it. Well, he, he has a very valid point, I think, um, <laughs> that uh, these are human remains and they should, be treated, they should be treated accordingly. I would argue, okay, if we were to continue along that line of logic that, you know, they should be treated according to the customs of 
the area, the era that they come from and uh, the tradition that they come from. So in the case of Mary Lynch, who was she? Well, was she a religious person? If not, was she, um, was she a secularist? How should she be buried through a secular ceremony, through a religious ceremony? That's, you know, that's a good um, topic uh, to discuss. But from, a, but from a historian standpoint, if we do not have these books on the shelves in collections available to be studied, what information can be lost to, to the researcher? And that goes a, a bit back to what you were talking about la last time, or it's like, do I believe the physical evidence or do I believe the oral tradition? Exactly. But let's say, but let's say I, I am a climatologist. Let's say in the future, and, and this is speculating, mm. um, this is, this is just me speculating. Do it. Um, but let's say in the future that um, we're faced with another climate problem. Uh, notice how I said another. Um, I'm trying not to think. I'm trying not to think too much about it. Um, otherwise, I'll be rocking uncomfortably under my chair. Um, but let's say that we're faced with another climate problem, uh, another atmospheric problem. I don't know what. Being able to look at corpses from before the advent of this, you know, of this hypothetical atmospheric problem could could lead us to understanding the climate problem at the time. Mm -hmm. When, or if we were to go back to the conversation about how some pathologies are preserved, uh, are remarkably preserved in the um, uh, skin of these books that have been so bound, what information about the evolution of a given pathology can be lost? Mm -hmm. I don't know, I'm not, I, that's more a devil's a devil's argument, mm -hmm. but I I think it's I think it's worth bringing into this conversation. And to be perfectly honest, I don't know where I, which side I land on. Yes, I think that these are that these are human remains and they should be treated with respect. Mm -hmm. And in the case of people like Mary Lynch who were bound without their consent, yeah, they're they were human beings and they should be treated with respect. Who is the person who consents to, to that, like, so many years after the fact? Exactly. Yeah. Some, someone has to. <laughs> cool. Well, y'all can grapple with that, too. But, yeah, that, that's, that's, pretty much, <laughs> that's pretty much where we are with that. Um, <sighs> we're done. We're done. We're done. What? <laughs> Somehow we got through this and somehow, and somehow we got your listeners through this uh, too. We all made it. We all made it through together. Um, whoever is left right now. Um, maybe like two of my friends possibly, <laughs> <laughs> but thank you. And um, we did our best. And, Don't bring um, me back unless we can talk about dogs and kittens. Okay. Well, come up with a good idea then. <laughs> <laughs> about dogs and kittens and living dogs and kittens and yes, I please. promise I didn't just um I promise I didn't just google existential risks any closing thoughts Chris I'm exhausted and I think I need a drink <laughs> same z's uh thanks for sticking with us thanks for giving a rip about books <laughs>